Father, we thank you. We do have the freedom to come into this room and uh, we have the freedom to sing your praises. We have the freedom to reflect on the fact that, <coughs> excuse me, we, uh, we really, none of us measure up. Um, none of us have faith that never wavers. None of us loves our neighbor the way we should. And we are able to confess these things to you and, and know that you forgive us. You cleanse us from our unrighteousness. And just as we know that, God, we also know that we can ask you to be our teacher. Would you help us to have this time not be just a, a routine that we do, but where we actually open our hearts and our minds up to you. And, and Father, would you, would you teach us? And Holy Spirit, uh, would you apply these truths in us in ways that make us more like our Savior Jesus? For we ask this in his name. Amen. Well, uh, you know, we've been for weeks now in a study of the book of Hebrews together. We're going to continue in that study. And we've been noting uh, week after week after week that this book is a book that's written to people uh, who have been persecuted. Uh, some of them have been put in jail. Some of them have their homes or their businesses uh, taken away from them. Some, a few, have actually lost their lives just because they follow Jesus. And as you can imagine, the church as a whole there to whom uh, this letter is being written, <clears throat> uh, many of the people are quite discouraged. So discouraged, in fact, that some of them are really considering leaving the faith. Uh, probably these were uh, of Jewish uh, faith prior to believing in Jesus as the Messiah. And some of them are thinking about going back to Judaism because that happens to be a faith that the Romans sanction and uh, allow, uh, but not Christianity. And so because of this tension and because of these difficulties, as I said, some are contemplating the possibility of uh, turning away from the faith. And every week we have seen the writer of Hebrews trying to give his readers a reason to hang on. He's trying to bolster their faith. And uh, here in chapter 11, that's what we're going to look at this morning. I wanted to read the whole thing, but it's a long chapter. Many of you are familiar with it. I'm going to encourage you to read it this afternoon in light of what we talk about this morning. Um, it's uh, it's a, a chapter that illustrates, it's sometimes called the Hall of Faith or the Hall of Fame because of the individuals that it mentions. Um, here in chapter 11, verse 1, we read these words. It says, now faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. So you see, faith has everything to do with something that is not yet realized. It's something yet to come in terms of coming in all its fullness. And in this passage, the writer gives us great examples of people who have lived by faith, found themselves in challenging circumstances and had to function, had to act on the basis of faith, believing in something that they did not yet see, certainly not in its fullness. And he talks about Abel and he talks about Enoch, talks about Noah, talks about Abraham, talks about Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, Joshua, Rahab, all who had to act in faith, believing and trusting. By faith they did this, by faith they did that. The list is pretty extensive. And then in verse 32, we read this. And what more shall I say? Because he's already said a mouthful. He's already given example after example of people acting in faith. He says, I do not have time to tell about Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and the prophets who, through faith, and then another list, 
conquered kingdoms, administered justice, and gained what was promised, who shut the mouths of lions, quenched the fury of the flames, and escaped the edge of the sword, whose weakness was turned into strength, and who became powerful in battle and routed foreign armies. Women received back their dead, raised to life again. And you got to go, wow, wow, wow. These stories are inspiring. Their stories are incredible. Any one of those stories would make a good sermon or a good series. These stories encourage us as well they should, because they're actually stories of victory. Uh, We're told in verse 34 that this group gained strength in weakness. So in other words, they started out weak, maybe a fledgling faith, if you will, but in the process of trusting And believing, they gained strength. They faced overwhelming odds. Some even faced death. Some, uh, after trusting, believing, actually came out on top. Their situation looked pretty desperate. They looked like they were defeated, but instead they experienced victory. And if you look at their list of their accomplishments, it's pretty amazing. It says they won military victories, they conquered kingdoms, they routed armies, it says, they administered justice, and they escaped the edge of the sword, meaning they escaped death. And these people looked like they were dead, but they didn't die. They found a way of escape. Some of these are are kind of interesting. It says some shut the mouths of lions. Who's that? That's almost certainly Daniel. Yeah, that would be Daniel. Uh, Daniel, of course, gets thrown into the lion's den. I mean, that's certain death. Nobody comes out alive. But God shuts the mouths of the lions. A miracle happens. Lo and behold, out he comes. He lived. He survived the night. Next, it says, some quench the fury of the flames. Who's that? That'd be Daniel's friends, almost certainly, right? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They were about to be thrown into the fiery furnace because they would not bow down to an idol, even though the king was telling them, you must bow down like everyone else. And they would not. And so they were thrown into the furnace. Good as dead, right? Nobody comes out of a fiery furnace unscathed, but out they came. In every one of these situations, from chapter 11, verse 1, all the way down to verse 35, these people faced overwhelming odds, almost certain death. But they call out to God, and in the end, a way of escape is provided, a way out. God uh, sends some kind of deliverer or some kind of deliverance. And the greatest of all of these is in verse 35. It says, women received back their dead, raised to life again. And you know who that's talking about? Well, probably uh, we we know of two women in the Old Testament uh, whose sons died and God gave them back their sons, uh, resurrected them, if you will. Uh, One was the widow of Zarephath whose son died and through Elijah's ministry, he raised her son back to life. The other one is a Shunammite woman. Uh, She met Elisha and through the power of God working through Elisha, her son was brought back to life. Now, we love these stories. I mean, how can you not love them? These are great because in every case, there is this wonderful, wonderful ending. It's like being told you have cancer. You've got two months to live. And you pray and you get all your family and all your friends to pray with you. And you do everything the doctor says to do. And and then you go back to the doctor and the doctor says, it's it's a miracle. The cancer is gone. 
It's like, wahoo. Yeah. Thank you, God. You know, we love stories like that as well. We should. We love stories that say, you know, my business was about to go under. I was facing economic disaster, but I prayed. I got my friends to pray, my family to pray. I had faith in God. I trusted God. I worked real hard and God turned it all around and now I'm successful. Yay. (laughs) That's a great story. And we like stories like that and we should. But if you understand faith uh, as including only stories, the kind that you bump into from verse 1 down to verse 35, if that's what you think faith is and that's how you think faith always operates, if you understand faith to be, if I try hard enough, if I believe deeply enough, if I uh, do what God wants me to do, I will get the victory I want to get. I will come out on top. If that's your understanding of faith, you're going to be deeply disappointed because life as it is now, this side of heaven before Jesus returns, life with all its brutalities very often doesn't work that way. If you think all you need to do is believe hard enough and work hard enough, somehow you will always escape. Somehow things will always work out well for you. Somehow things will just go your way. Well, good luck. Good luck with that. We'll see how that works for you down the road. A few years back, I read a good biography, um, one I enjoyed about the Dietrich Bonhoeffer, uh, leading theologian and pastor in Germany at the time when the Nazis came into power in the 1930s. And uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a pastor who really wrestled with the problems he saw developing in his home country there of Germany. And, and he joined a group of people that were opposing Hitler. In fact, eventually they started trying to figure out a way to kill Hitler. So part of pastors, any pastor's job. Uh, and he, uh, <clears throat> he also opposed all of the efforts he was able to oppose surrounding the persecution of Jews. He had a lot to do with uh, helping Jews get out of uh, Germany early, uh, early in the days of Nazi power. Anyway, because of his attempts to oppose Hitler, because of his attempts to oppose the Nazi party, he eventually, not surprisingly really, wound up in prison. He actually wound up in a concentration camp And literally, literally just days before Germany surrendered, he was brutally hanged. No escape. And yet, got to ask, when you read a powerful biography and story like that, what happened? Did he not have enough faith? Did his friends not have enough faith? Did his family not have enough faith? Was there some sin that they were hiding? Did they not try hard enough? You see, if you think that, well, then your understanding of faith ends at verse 35 of Hebrews chapter 11. Verse 35. You have a very stunted understanding of real biblical faith. Because you see, the notion that if you just have enough faith, you'll be healed. Or if you just have enough faith, things will go the way you want them to go, or if you just have enough faith, difficulties will go away. That, that, friends, is just not true. Look at verse 35 again. In the middle of this verse, verse 35, there's this ginormous change of direction. I don't know if you uh, are aware of this, but it starts, uh, this change of direction starts with this word others. Others. 
The, now, when it's talking about others, it's talking about others who, who believed, right? It's talking about others who, who had faith in God. They were trusting God. These are others who also worked hard uh, and, and, and obeyed God and prayed and prayed and prayed. And yet their life went in a completely different direction than they would have liked for it to go. Um, give you some examples here. You know, Peter uh, would belong in the first group, verses 1 down through the first part of verse 35, right? Peter, at least until he was crucified, <laughs> that didn't exactly go according to Peter's plan. But, but uh, in Acts chapter 5, we have the example, you remember he's locked up and he's in jail and all the disciples are praying for him and praying that God would release him because the, the reality was he might very well be killed then. And you remember the angel comes and it's just an absolutely miraculous, incredible story how he has sprung from jail. And you read that and, and that's the kind of story you go, good job, Peter. Good job, God. Way to go. Yay. Hallelujah. But then there are others, right? Others like John the Baptist, who also went to jail, you remember. His disciples prayed too, no doubt. And uh, John was beheaded. That was the end for John. Uh, David, as you know, belongs in the verses 1 down through uh, the middle of verse 35 because David was a shepherd, you recall. He kind of went from weakness to strength, right? Because he, from a shepherd, he eventually one day becomes king. In the process, he becomes an attendant to King Saul and he's raised to power and glory and he's a successful uh, soldier in Saul's army. But Saul, you remember, begins to resent David and resent the popularity that David has with the people. And then Saul seeks to kill David. And David becomes a fugitive. He's on the run. And his life is hanging in the balance because the king, the king of the land, is looking to kill him. And yet, of course, the story, you know how it ends. He, he, he moves from, uh, from weakness into strength. He becomes king himself someday. He ascends to the throne. He had power. He had success. He's the one who conquered kingdoms. He wins because he trusted God. But then there are others. Do you remember Jonathan? Remember Jonathan, who is the king's son, Saul's son. He's a good friend of David. And uh, uh, he was noble. He was a military commander. He was a gifted leader. He had integrity. He had character. Yet because he trusted God, because he was faithful to God, because he was faithful to his friend David and wanted to be faithful even to his father Saul, he lost everything. Eventually he died in battle, as a young man, a battle fought far away from home that accomplished not so much, not, not, not too much. You see, David trusted God. Everything went well. Again and again, he escaped the edge of the sword. But others, 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 everybody after the word others did not. They don't get what they're looking for. They trusted God. They believed. They prayed. But there was no escape. There was no miracle. They died. They suffered. They were tortured. They were persecuted. Some quite severely. Look again at verse 35. It says, And women received back their dead, raised to life, but others were tortured, not accepting release to obtain resurrection to a better life, it says. The, uh, the others here who were tortured, not accepting release, many commentators believe that this is referring to a period in Jewish history that every Jew would have known like the back of their hand because these were frequently told stories. And, and uh, so the early readers, people reading this letter, the letter to the Hebrews would have kind of known what this is referring to. But us being Gentiles, we're not so familiar with this Jewish history. We scratch our head and go, Ooh, what what's this talking about? 
Well, commentators, some will tell you that the, this is very likely a reference uh, to some Maccabean martyrs, referring to massacres that took place uh, between the Old Testament and New Testament period. It was a very interesting time in Jewish history. We have writings that tell us about this period, and many of them, though, are not familiar to us. We don't read these uh, often or at all. But here's what happened. There was, a, there was a conquering king named Antiochus Epiphanes, and he was the king of Syria. He's uh, one of the uh, recipients of, of the work of Alexander the Great. And now he's Antiochus Epiphanes is the king in Syria. And he comes into Israel at this point, conquers all of Palestine, all of Israel. And now, unfortunately, he is a very, very, very brutal tyrant. And one of the things he used to do was he would take prominent Jewish families and he would bring them out into the public square, public arena in order to make an example of them. And he would command them to disobey God or deny God altogether and swear allegiance to himself. One of the things he would oftentimes ask them to do is eat meat or do something that would make them unclean, ceremonially unclean. And if they wouldn't, He'd have them publicly tortured and killed to make a lesson of them. And you can read some of these stories in 2 Maccabees. In fact, in chapter 7, there's a famous one. It's a martyr story. It's about a mother who had seven sons. Each son was brought before Antiochus Epiphanes and asked, Will you disobey God's law? Will you bow down to the king? And if he didn't, if the son didn't, Antiochus had his tongue cut out had his limbs, his arms, and his legs cut off, had him scalped, and then while still breathing, had the remaining body thrown on a hot pan to be fried alive in front of his mother and remaining brothers. And then to make things worse, he had to wear a mask. <laughs> That's laughable, isn't it? That's really laughable. Now, when the one brother would die, then Antiochus uh, would turn to the next brother and he'd say, what about you? And he went right down the line. In 2 Maccabees, verse 7, it says that the mother stood there and encouraged her sons to die courageously for the glory of God. In fact, we read this, it says, And the mother encouraged each of them, each of her sons, filled with a noble spirit. She said to them, It was not I who gave you life and breath. It was the creator of the world who devised the origin of all things and who will, in his mercy, give life and breath back to you again, since you now forget yourselves for his sake. Wow. So every one of her sons died bravely. And when Antiochus was done killing the sons, he killed the mother in exactly the same way. Now, I know that's gruesome, but it's gruesome reality. And frankly, the truth about us <laughs> is that all of us have lived pretty safe lives. And we know almost nothing about real opposition or persecution. I'll speak for myself. I, I know almost nothing about persecution. You know, there, <laughs> there are many, uh, perhaps some, who didn't join us today just because they heard we'd have to be wearing masks again. And who wants to do that? I don't. I bet you don't either. Um, it, it's funny to me that a, a, an issue as unimportant as masks 
has actually divided churches. We've had families leave our church because we chose to, uh, we think, obey Romans 13 and, and say, you know, if they ask us to do this, or tell us to do that, we're, we're, we're going to comply. Regardless what we think masks do or don't do, that's not the point. The fact that I can still sing and I can still pray and I can still learn and I can still worship my God wearing a mask means, okay, I'll, I'll listen, I'll comply. Like I said earlier, when the day happens that there's a line drawn in the sand that says, you cannot worship God, you cannot study his word, you cannot have a copy of his word, you cannot pray. Dad gummit. On that day, we disobey. And we do what we're supposed to do. But I have a hard time getting all riled up about masks. You know, understand, most peoples living at most times and in most places were just a step away from some kind of devastation or persecution just because they followed God, just because they followed Jesus Christ. And as I said, m most of us don't know hardly a thing about that. Makes you wonder, doesn't it? How did they do that? How, how did they face the kind of stuff that the writer of Hebrews is talking about here? How did they cope? Well, some, some were told, some women actually received back their dead, raised to life. But not this mother. Not the one in 2 Maccabees chapter 7 who just saw her son's torture. She saw no miracle, no deliverance, no intervention, no escape. And yet she defied the evil in the world and said, we will not bow. We will not dishonor our God. She stood up to Antiochus Epiphanes. How on earth did she do that? Well, fortunately, uh, the writer here in Hebrews tells us, it's in verse 35, it says, she believed in a better resurrection. That's how she did this. She believed in a better resurrection. You see, her faith told her that this life is not all there is. Once more, it told her that, that this life is not in any way, shape, or form as good as it's going to get. Not this life. There's something better coming. She believed that because God said that. You see, as good as it was for a woman to receive back her dead, hallelujah, amen, we all hope for that ending. In this case, this mother did not. Her sons, all seven of them, died. And then so did she. And as good as it is to receive back your dead, uh, back to life, as good as that is, as good as it was for Martha and Mary to get their brother Lazarus back or Jairus to get his daughter uh, back from the dead, as great as that was, all terrific miracles, all hallelujahs for sure. But even so, they, they were really just resuscitations more than they were resurrections, if you think about it. Because even though the person was brought back to life, they were still now subject after that to suffering, to illness, to hardship, to hurts, to heartaches, and eventually again to death. They got kind of a do-over. 
But they still had to face again the terrible day of death. Escape from suffering was only temporary for them. Escape from death was only temporary for them. But this mother in Maccabees was not willing to put her faith in the possibility of a resuscitation. Instead, she put her faith in the absolute certainty of a future glorious resurrection. She did not have just have uh, some vague hope for life after death. She knew that sin and death and evil and all of the awful effects of evil, all of those things one day were going to be reversed. Why? Because God had promised so. Sin and death and evil were going to be utterly and completely defeated. That's what she believed. She knew that someday resurrection, which meant new heaven, new earth, new life, new bodies, new relationships, would all be the result of God establishing his kingdom here on earth. Fully and completely. A kingdom where his will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. His kingdom would be a place where everything would be fixed. Everything would be as it should be. She knew that her sons, they would someday get back their tongues. <laughs> they would someday get back their hands, their eyes, their lives. They'd be reunited with ones they love. And their lives would be full of joy and full of life. That's what this woman believed. That's what believing in the resurrection means. You understand. Not just some hope that things might turn out better for a while. Things might go their way. Things might take a turn for the better. All of these people that we're reading about, all of these people mentioned in these verses had this kind of resurrection, hope and faith. All of them did. For example, in verse 34, the reference to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego uh, quenching the fury of the flames. The king has said to them, bow down to this idol or you are going to be thrown into a fiery furnace. And I love their response. They say, oh, Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to save us from it. And he will rescue us from your hand, O king. But even if he does not, we want you to know, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. Do you hear what they're saying there? They're saying our God could deliver us from death and suffering. In fact, we think he will. We hope he will. But even if he doesn't, it doesn't matter. Why not? Because their faith was not rooted in their agenda for God. Think about that. Their faith in, was in God and in his agenda. You know, when we say things like, gosh, I was trusting God, I prayed to God, I believed God would work, but you know, then he didn't come through. He didn't do what I asked him to do. When we talk like that, what we are saying is that we are really trusting in God to fulfill my agenda. To do what I want him to do. What, what I'm really concerned about there is my kingdom and my will being done. But friends, God will not work according to our plan. It's not his job to complete our agendas. And quite frankly, our agendas are frequently, perhaps most often wrong. 
You see, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, all these people mentioned here in, a, in a Hebrews chapter 11, um, they believed God, they trusted God, and they didn't have to have God do their will in order to believe in Him. They were trusting that God would do His will, and that meant that one day, you see, a resurrection was going to happen. And one of the great challenges of the book of Hebrews is to cultivate such a relationship with God that we rest in him whether living or dying. We rest in him whether comfortable or miserable, whether at peace or whether being persecuted. You see, the confidence that these people had was not that God would do their agenda. It was that God knew best, period. God and his agenda was better than anything this life could possibly give us and better than anything that death can take away from us. And so we have to ask, well, how, how could they know that? How, how could they possibly believe that? Well, understand, in the Old Testament, believers look forward to God fulfilling many, many, many promises. They constantly looked forward. They had signs, they had symbols, they had types all pointing forward that God would one day bring about redemption. God would one day introduce his kingdom. God would one day create a people for himself where his law was written on their hearts and carried with them in their minds. One day God would send a Messiah. And that's Old Testament. Then you come to New Testament and that day comes. You see, believers then had, had seen how God uh, w- would work and how God would cause incredible good, even redemption, to come from what looked like complete and absolute defeat at the hands of the evil one. And God did that through a better resurrection, a better resurrection of his own son. You see, the resurrection of Jesus was proof perfect that God can and will always keep his promises, even if it looks like everything is going to hell in a handbasket. And we've talked about this many times. But when Jesus was arrested, when Jesus was tortured, when Jesus was crucified and when Jesus actually breathed his last and died for the disciples, you understand, in that moment, in that time, watching what was happening. I mean, that was it. It was over. Nothing they were expecting to happen happened. Remember the brothers James and John talking to Jesus about getting special seats by Jesus when he came into his kingdom. One of them wanted to be on the right. One of them wanted to be on the left. Believe me, they neither one want to be on his right or on his left when they're looking at him hanging on a cross. You see, they didn't see that coming. They didn't know that Jesus being tortured, being crucified, dying on the cross was part of God's agenda. They had never conceived of such a thing. So what happened? You see, Jesus had faith in the Father. Jesus, you remember, prayed in the garden, my Father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me. But it wasn't. On the cross, Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And in fact, he had. No rescue came. No escape happened. 
When Jesus ministered here on earth, it looked like God was with Jesus so powerfully that his, his disciples had become convinced he, he just might be God. And so they bowed down to him. They listened to him. They, they worshiped him. I mean, Jesus' teaching was teaching with authority. They watched Jesus heal the sick. They had watched him casting out demons, walking on water, calming a storm, resuscitating the dead. But now this torture, crucifixion, and death? My point is, none of the disciples saw any of this coming, let alone understood why. None of Jesus' followers could even imagine what God was up to, what God was doing or going to do, what good could possibly come out of this atrocity. And then God did the completely unexpected. He gave a better resurrection <laughs> to his son. And out of the grave comes Jesus. You see, Jesus' resurrection was a repudiation of evil. It was a, a repudiation of the evil one. It was a repudiation of death itself, of sin, of destruction, and, and all that sin accomplishes. It's God saying, nothing can stop me from achieving my purpose. It's God saying, nothing can stop me from redeeming my people. Absolutely nothing. It's God saying, nothing can prevent my kingdom from coming and my will being done. The writer of Hebrews wants his readers not to lose faith, no matter what, not to give up, not even in the face of evil, not even in the face of hardship, not even in the face of persecution, real persecution. Because you see, faith is being sure of what we hoped for and certain of what we do not see. And what do we hope for? Well, I don't know about you, but man, I hope for sins to be forgiven. Mine need to be forgiven. I hope for the brokenness in me and the brokenness in you and the brokenness in our world to, to be healed and to be fixed. I hope for relationships to, to get put back on track. I hope for death to be overcome. I hope for justice to be done because it's certainly not done in the world in which we live. And, and we're culpable in that. You see, God raising Jesus from the dead is shocking proof that God's will will be done. Nothing can stop it being done. God raising Jesus from the, get, from the dead is, is kind of act one, you understand. We, we've witnessed act one. Jesus is alive, seated at the right hand of the Father. Act two is coming. That will come when Jesus returns. You see, the raising of Jesus from the dead is God's guarantee, his absolute guarantee. His kingdom will come. His will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. You know, every religion uh, gives us stories, offers us some kind of hope about life after death for good reason, because it is our most serious problem. <laughs> You're all going to die. So am I. I'm getting close. And the, the I, I, you know, I, I'd like to hear something encouraging on the subject of death. And religions will give you that, all kinds of different approaches to the problem of death uh, in various religions. But Christianity, friends, Christianity alone gives us something more than a story. It gives us an actual person. 
Christianity makes the claim that it is rooted and grounded in history. It gives us claims to examine and facts to examine and to wrestle with. It gives us testimony. That's what the Bible is. It's, it's testimony about people who did life with Jesus and then to their shock and surprise saw him tortured, crucified, and dead. But then also, so they claim, they saw him back from the dead. And they've written all about it. And they've given us that testimony. And they challenge us to believe. You see, here's the thing. Christianity alone gives us an actual person who loved and served, but lost it all, right? Lost it all. An actual person who taught truth, but was at least for a time defeated, utterly defeated by lies, by evil, by death itself. Christianity alone gives us something more than a story. It gives us an actual person who suffered God's punishment for our sin, who died and went into the grave, but did not stay there, came out of the grave victorious, utterly and absolutely victorious. And therefore, therefore, because of this better resurrection that I see in Jesus, I do not need to fear anything. I can keep believing and I can keep trusting. And I can know that the day is coming when all the stuff that's broken will be fixed. When all the tears that are being cried will be wiped away. When all the sorrows that we all experience will be turned into joy. And when death, death itself, our by far greatest enemy, death itself will be done away. So, you see, I, I can now know today all of these things because of a better resurrection, the resurrection of Jesus. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this letter. We thank you for these words of encouragement. We thank you, Father, that as we find oftentimes our faith fledgling or our faith floundering, uh, Father, we read these words and we are pointed to the faith of those who've come before us and how they trusted in the midst of incredibly difficult circumstances and they trusted believing in a better resurrection, the resurrection that we get the first taste of in seeing Jesus resurrected from the dead. And Father, it's that resurrection that gives us the faith, the trust, the strength, the ability to continue on no matter what. To continue on even when in this life we experience defeat. Even when in this life we're not victorious because we believe in the victory that's coming, in the victory that's secured, in the victory that's guaranteed in Jesus. Thank you for his resurrection. Thank you for this better resurrection, Father. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.